Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Today I'm chatting to James Perry. He's one of the founders of Cook, the frozen ready meal delivery service. He's also a board member and pioneer at the B Corp movement in the UK. And he's recently launched Snowball, an investment company seeking to shake up the financial markets. And in today's episode, I'm asking James why impact investing matters. James, welcome to Why It Matters. Lovely to have you along on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're a man who wears many hats and has quite an entrepreneurial spirit. So uh, you're the chairman and director of Cook, uh, which does the the wonderful frozen home-cooked meals. And I'm guessing that probably during this last period has done pretty well during lockdown. Has it as a business? Have you been doing well during the kind of lockdown? Have you seen sales go up? Yeah, we've been very fortunate to be able to keep our shops open, but we've also seen an absolutely massive switch to online. So it's been hugely challenging operationally with a lot of COVID in the business, but we're just one of the fortunate ones who's been able to uh, sell our products. Fantastic. And then another string to your bow, um, another hat that you wear is that you're sort of an ambassador and one of the founders of the UK chapter, I suppose, of the B Corp movement. Is that right? Yeah. So I co-founded B Lab UK, which is the not-for-profit that supports the growth of the B Corp movement. And I'm also on the board of B Lab. And you've got sort of 400 businesses that are now registered and accredited. Is that right? So yeah, in the UK now, there's uh, over 400. And uh, how would you describe B Corp uh, in a kind of nutshell to, to those who've never heard of it? So B Corp is a completely different idea about what business is for. So instead of being a machine to make profits for shareholders, B Corps think that business should be a machine that creates value for everybody, for people, planet and for shareholders profit. Um, So it's really a completely different idea about capitalism and business. So just a small, small ambition then to kind of shake (laughs) up shake up the industry and that sort of segues nicely into the topic that we're talking about today which is impact investing you've set up an investment vehicle called snowball is that right and that's been going for about four or five years Uh, that's right yeah about three years i guess uh, it'd be interesting just to hear the little bit of story about your background in how you ended up in impact investing you know what was your route into into the into the industry well so Actually, Snowball is the investment sort of yin to the B Corp's yang. So all business needs investment capital sooner or later. And and so they really, they they come from the same place, um, Snowball and the B Corp movement, which is questioning this idea that investment capital is there to maximize financial returns or business is there to maximize profits. It's it's two halves of the same coin. And I got into it because, uh, well, actually, I trained at Cadbury Limited in Birmingham. Uh, which was a great Quaker business. And uh, Cadbury, the chocolate was invented by George Cadbury as a, as a social good product because it was there to, comp- it, was, it was originally a drink that was there to compete against gin because people were spending too much time in gin shops and it was part of the temperance movement. And uh-huh. so, so George Cadbury then tried to build this business, which really was looking after everybody, employees, uh, the community, as well as its customers. And whilst I was there in the 1990s, the business was being run under a program called Managing for Shareholder Value, which was the extraction of all of those original purposes 
in order to enable the business to make more money more quickly. And I was looking at what the consequences of that were going to be in terms of, you know, shoving more chocolate down people's necks quicker, mm. thinking this doesn't feel right. And so then, so then after I left Cadbury's and, and was, my brother and I were creating Cook, uh, we needed venture capital. So I spoke to the venture capital funds and I learned about their fund mandates and how they think and measure and how they approach investment, which is all ultimately about their exit and their, their sale moment and how the value of the company was calculated at that moment of liquidity. And what they saw as their fiduciary duties to their own investors, which might be pension funds or insurance companies or whatever. And they saw that their fiduciary duty was to maximize the financial interests of their investors, which essentially meant that if Cook had taken their money, we would have become a money machine. You know, we'd yeah. have been become financialized. And that wasn't something that we wanted to do. So we didn't take the venture capital, but that left me with a bit of a kind of chip on my shoulder because I thought this do this doesn't make any sense to me. And when I told the venture capitalists it didn't make any sense to me, I was told that I was just plain wrong. And I thought I thought, yeah, you you know, definitely you outvote me on that, but it just doesn't feel right. Where does that that unrest come from for you? What was it that what was the trigger in your own mind that kind of unsettled you and made you think actually there's a better way of doing this? Well, I did an economics degree and I was taught that there are three inputs. There's land, labour and capital. So if you like people, planet and profit. And the way I saw it was that this new system of shareholder value and, and capital primacy had given capital a kind of divine right over people and planet. So the kind of logical extension for me was that people and planet became kind of inputs to be consumed in order to manufacture more financial capital. And to me, that made it feel like business was in danger of becoming a kind of plague of locusts on the world, where it saw everything that moved as a kind of potential resource to be exploited to make more financial capital. And so that's kind of where I was in 2000, in the 90s, actually, but in the, in the early 2000s. And, and I think that probably the evidence is increasingly plain that that is kind of what's happening with, you know, planetary crises, and social inequality crises, obesity crises, mental health crises, all the rest of it, driven by businesses using us and the planet as a raw material to make money. The whole kind of idea of ethical investing obviously is a new idea. And I guess I remember going to my financial advisor when I was way back, first thinking about getting a pension and they were sort of asking me what my ethical stance was for investing. And there was a lot of talk in the kind of late 90s around sort of, you know, getting an ethical uh, ethical ISA or an ethical uh, SIP or a pension fund. There's a lot of terminology around, you know, ESG is a new thing that's come out sort of three, sort of last two, three years. Is it all the same thing? Is it all related to impact investing? Or is there a nuance to impact investing that is different to, say, ESG or, or ethical investing approaches? So there's a, there's a sort of alphabet soup and a huge amount of greenwashing and marketing. And in order to kind of make sense of it, I think it's really helpful to look at this as basically two completely different and competing ideas. So on the one hand, you have the, basically the idea that the purpose of business and the purpose of investment and investment managers is to maximize the financial interests of, of the shareholders or the investors, profit maximizing. And that idea was um, really came out of Chicago in the 1960s and 1970s. Milton Friedman is its kind of poster boy. Um, and it was then disseminated by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev 
in the 1980s. And Marcel Fukuyama talked about the end of history. You know, it was everybody agreed that that was the route to prosperity because the idea was that as uh, wealth is created, it trickles down to everybody. And as the tide comes in, all the boats rise. And therefore, we all become more prosperous. Education improves, healthcare improves, society flourishes, people pay more taxes and the rest of it. But what we've learned is that that isn't actually what happens and that we have these terrible externalities which are visited on society. So a lot of, a lot of ethical investing is essentially seeking to ameliorate the most negative consequences of that, but operating within that paradigm. Ethical investing historically was just screening out things like arms companies and tobacco companies, then became about more ESG, which is environmental, social and governance, which is um, effectively a set of tick boxes to large companies to say, do you have human rights abuses in your supply chain uh, and those sorts of things? But ultimately, it's still working within that paradigm that the purpose is to maximise the financial interests. Then there's an alternative paradigm, which is impact investing, which is saying, actually, investment activity and business activity needs to promote the interests of everybody. Or if you're uh, the British Academy's purpose of the corporation project, you'd put that as to profitably solve the problems of people and planet without profiting from creating them. If you are the shareholder commons, it would be the first fiduciary responsibility not to be to your investors, but to be to protect the systems in which your investment activity is embedded. So it's a completely different idea. Wow. And therefore, ESG is, is operating within what I would call the individualist paradigm, which is taking one capital financial capital to promote its interests, which leads to individualism, whereas impact investment is operating from the interdependent paradigm, which says all of these things are interdependent. We cannot live in a destroyed planet or in devastated communities. Therefore, the interests of them all need to be thought through and prioritised as part of the operation of business and capital. So it's a kind of holistic outlook and, and, and where you see that the investment has a consequence beyond the actual business needs and investing in the business to actually see what the consequence of that investment has on the people that are involved in the business and beyond and then also the impact on the planet as well so it's kind of a it's taking the wide view rather than the narrow view is that right it's taking a holistic view and it is going a step further which is setting out intentionally to have a positive social and environmental impact. Very good. And I guess one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is when we've talked about this in the past, you've been quite clear that you think actually impact investing could be done better. There's a sense in which that, you know, the system is up and running and there's an opportunity, but actually it could be strengthened and built upon. So I guess the kind of core question of the interview is really around this. Why doing impact investing properly matters well so i think that there's a real risk with impact investing that it's a kind of beautiful narrative it's very sort of uh, resonant with the younger generation and there are a lot of legacy investment management businesses which are very large and very entrenched who hear the narrative and think yeah no look that makes sense so what they do effectively is they try and put it through their sausage machine but the trouble is that the sausage machine is designed around the individualist idea about around prioritizing financial capital, and it simply cannot do impact. So it's no good making a sausage and sticking a green wrapper on it. It's still a sausage, right? So what you need to do is build a new machine, which is not a sausage machine. It's a different kind of machine. And that means that you have to rethink root and branch everything to do with an investment company. So 
everything from how its staff are recruited, from what sort of communities they're recruited. It needs to be about how they're remunerated and incentivized, because right now, you know, money is what talks, basically. Um, it needs to be around how they're governed, who they're governed by. But most importantly, in some ways, it's about how they think. So, you know, the traditional investment company thinks about broadly two things, uh, risk and return. Um, and obviously liquidity is a kind of overlay, but, but risk and return. So it's like an analog kind of binary thing. Whereas what impact investment needs to do is it needs to introduce a sort of third lens. So it becomes technicolor, digital, where you introduce impact as well. So historically, investment managers haven't really asked about the social and environmental consequences of their investments. As long as it's lawful, then, you know, the, the assumption was that the, the, the governments will regulate you. But as long as it's lawful, anything goes. Whereas what impact investment does is it internalizes your social and environmental responsibilities which means that you have to think about, understand the social and environmental consequences, which is a massive new unknown set of information, which needs to then be found, analysed and brought to bear in the decision making. And that means that every single thing within, an, within that sausage machine needs to be have a th sort of third wheel. Does that make it quite an onerous, onerous thing? I'm just, just thinking in terms of, you know, that it sounds like there's a kind of it obviously needs to be really meticulous to make sure that the kind of impact is genuine. But how does that work on a kind of day to day practice? So as you get more granular, it becomes sort of slightly more onerous. But the, I suppose the first point I'd make is we are at the very beginning of this. What I would see is complete revolution in capitalism because we don't have a choice. Right. You know, capital is so efficient at extracting financial value that it's turning our planet into a rubbish heap. And it's making it an unviable place for our species to even live. Um, and also it's causing massive social division, mental health crises, obesity crises, drug addiction crises, opioid crises, agri-capitalism destroying the rainforest, all the rest of it. So because these challenges are so urgent, we are going to have to change very radically. And we are only at the beginning of it. So in terms of your question about is it very complicated, the answer is so far actually it's not that complicated. But that's mostly because we haven't made it complicated yet because we, we're not very sophisticated. But what the early pioneers of this whole idea are realizing is that process is terrifically important. So you need to examine the mission of the in investees, the people that are doing it, why they're doing it, what their own processes are, how they govern themselves. You need to ask yourselves about how catalytic these investments are. So it's all very well having an investment in a wind farm, but is wind really the right technology? I mean, I don't know. I, but, but the point is you need to ask yourself these kind of materiality questions. You need to look at impact risk. So for example, you know, there's been a big debate around palm oil. People think that that's destroying ecosystems, but then everybody leaves palm oil and you create a economic crisis in the palm oil countries. So, you know, how do you how do you have a kind of just transition? So it, it essentially opens up a whole bunch of new considerations. And we're in the baby steps now of going down all of these things. But it, it's definitely an emerging field. And I wouldn't pretend that it's particularly sophisticated at this point. And is Snowball pioneering in that sense? Are you, are you striking out on your own or is there a kind of community, a groundswell within the investment community of seeing the value of this approach to investing? Yeah, so this is a system change. It's an urgently needed system change. 
and it will not be done by anybody on their own. We have to do it together. So one of the interesting things about the people pursuing an interdependent paradigm is that they cooperate, they collaborate, they share information, because that's how you solve these greater challenges. If you want to kill each other, you hoard information because you have a sort of differential advantage. But if you are both addressing yourselves to a greater challenge, you need to work together. So what you'll find is um, that the companies, the B Corps that are investment companies, have strong relationships between them. They're, they're constantly set sharing best practice because actually we're much more interested in how you can use investment capital to solve the climate crisis than we are in beating each other. And actually, frankly, there's still a mass, there's a big enough set of dinosaur institutions to go after that we don't need to take chunks out of each other. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's all about systems change is a team sport. You know, we have to do this together. And therefore, for example, with Snowball, when we come to manage our impact, we are part of something called the Impact Management Project, which is a lot of institutions all over the world that are seeking out best practice. And what we're then doing is applying that best practice, creating case studies, enabling people to see how it's done and to see the merits of it. And is it private money at the moment or are you, are you going after a kind of mass affluent audience to, to, to get involved with this? What's the, what's the kind of strategy for Snowball? Well, I think the long term... The long term for this whole field is democratization. You know, people people need to be able to move their own money. You know, we've all, well, most people have some form of insurance or pension. Uh, those are run for them by giant institutions um, who do it on their behalf um, and often do it in ways that they profoundly disagree with. So um, right now, this is a small group of people trusts and foundations who put some money into something, hired a management team in order to pilot it, really, to try it and to make sure that this was this was going to work. After three years of getting three years track record, it's becoming clear that it does work. So actually, Snowball just got regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority so that it could take money from other people. So it's literally just last month started taking money from other people and it will grow in size by about 50% in the, in the sort of first quarter, first half of this year. So it'll start to roll. But basically, the goal or the end point with this, whether it's Snowball or somebody else, is that people can move their own money into this stuff and out of the stuff that is destroying our planet and our communities. But how do you make sure that the the impact that you're generating is meaningful, that it creates attraction and creates momentum, that actually creates a bit of a, a kind of a crest of a wave that others then join in with the journey? Well, I think I think the key to that is lies in purpose and governance. So it's very difficult for a company whose legal documents and culture and governance and shareholders want it to maximise financial value. Very difficult for them to actually do this with authenticity. Uh, and what it becomes quite quickly is kind of window dressing or CSR or kind of at best sort of patchy. You know, we do the easy stuff, but we don't do the difficult. Yeah. Where it becomes meaningful is when the purpose of the investment or the purpose of the business itself is changed. So there's really two, there's a twin track within this movement. One of them is to change company law so that uh, the boards of directors are no longer responsible primarily to shareholders, but rather they're responsible to all stakeholders who rank equally. So the interest of the planet and employees and so on are as important to a board of directors of the interests of the shareholders. So that's one thing. But on the other side, it's, there's a lot of talk about changing fiduciary responsibilities. So uh, 
Um, people currently think customer practice around fiduciary responsibility is to maximize the financial interest of the investors. And there is a strong move now to say, actually, that's an incorrect understanding of fiduciary duty. There's no point in having a pension if my pension company delivers it to me in a world which is unlivable. Therefore, the pension company has a fiduciary duty to uh, steward my pension in a way that is operates in my best broader interests so that mm. we live in a stable planet with stable societies. And that, and that then totally opens the minds and the conversation at the boardroom. And it means that that the people governing these things and managing these things have to think different because actually they have a different duty to what they used to think they had. And are you putting your money directly into businesses or are you going through funds generally? Yeah, so Snowball currently is a fund of funds. So we invest in, we find great fund managers who then make the investments. And what's happened over the last certainly sort of 10 or 15 years is, you know, 15 years ago, if you went into London and talked about this idea, everyone just thought you were mad. Yeah. 10 years ago, there were a small group of pioneers, you know, led probably by Sir Ronald Cohen, who was a founder of, uh, of Apex, uh, who he was one of the fathers of the private in- equity industry, who had a sort of epiphany, I suppose, and created something called social finance to explore alternatives. He co-founded a business called Bridges Ventures, which is now Bridges Investment Management, which is a private equity firm. So these sort of people started doing this thing. Big issues started exploring this area of the homelessness magazine. And created big issue invest so a bunch of pioneers started exploring this area and over the last sort of five years it's exploded so now there are a large number of really credible fund managers who have got the right governance got the right fund mandates find, found the right investors and are really looking out for the right kind of businesses to invest in so snowball recently made an investment in something called circularity capital And their entire idea is to find circular economy businesses to invest in because they think they're going to be the growth businesses of the future. You know, if if they get it right, it's good investing and it is delivering solutions. And what's lost if this kind of investing doesn't happen? Well, the status quo is just totally broken and unsustainable. What happens is that that brokenness gets worse and people are seeking solutions. This is one solution I'd see it as a very constructive and uh, credible solution. There are others, though, you know, so there are plenty of snake oil salesmen out there. People like Donald Trump are saying to the dispossessed in America, you know, come to me, I will solve your problems by, you know, going to trade war with China or whatever it might be, whilst I'm also leaving the Paris Agreement and the rest of it. So, and people kind of think, oh, yeah, that's in my interests, you know, so. We have to beware populists. And I think that that what we're going to increasingly see is a slight bifurcation of more populists, more siren calls for quick fixes, and also a growth of this much more serious endeavour, which does have the potential to make a difference. What's your sense of where the tipping point is, moving from a kind of short-term populist position to something that is more longer term? I think that the people, somehow the challenges to take this conversation from one which is, you know, happening in a very small bubble and also is prone to gobbledygook and speaking stuff that regular people just can't connect with, somehow taking it and putting it into a narrative and a popular, popularised narrative where people can really connect with that actually, you know, their own money through their pensions and insurance company is being used against them to invest in, for example, a tech company that might have a vested interest in making them addicted 
in order that it can sell stuff to them and take their data and and kind of manipulate. You know, if people can kind of understand the stuff that's going on, then they will move very fast. But the trouble is right now, the you know the opioids, the smartphones, the the donuts have such a grip on us that it's sometimes easier not to not to look at that too closely and instead believe the siren calls of the populace. So look, it's a kind of almost like a spiritual battle that's underway, really. And um, and we just need to find the stories and find the narratives to make it exciting, make it compelling and make it understandable. Yeah. What would you say were the key factors to ensure that the the impact has is success, that you ultimately create the opportunity, that it grows from something that is at the moment a tiny grain of sand on a beach to something that has more momentum behind it? Well, I think that there is a sea change going on in how the next gen are thinking. So crudely, you had the boomer generation who still basically have their hands on the levers of power. And they were raised in the world of sort of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And they really bought into this idea that the the prosperity gospel, that as wealth is created, everybody benefits and societies progress. And they really believe that very deeply. So they're not bad people. They have a belief, which was perfectly reasonable based on the data back in the 1980s. But based on the data now, it just doesn't hold. But, but the boomers are often finding it difficult to kind of make that change because, you know, old dogs and new tricks and all, all of that stuff. But as we're seeing the next generation come through and they're starting to get their hands on the levers of power, they do think very differently. And increasingly, I think that we will see this cultural change embed itself in our financial system. I do think that there are that we've had 50 years of policymaking, which has been built on this idea that you know maximizing financial interests is a proxy for maximizing the interests of everybody. And unwinding that is going to take a long time. And I think that policymakers have a real role to play in facilitating and accelerating this transition. And right now, they're resisting it and they are captured by the vested interests. We're, see- we're seeing policymaking. Uh, holding it back rather than promoting it and supporting its transition. Given then that it's a kind of, it's a game of patience and that, you know, snowballs in a kind of pilot phase where you're sort of, you're trying to get it up and running. What's, what are the next steps in the strategy to give a sense of progress or the sense that actually is you're telling the investors and you're telling yourselves to hold your nerve as you, as you kind of, grow your opportunity and you get more investors on board if there isn't that sort of populist focus on the short term immediate impact and those returns in the short term what's the strategy what's the key elements to actually encourage people to be patient take that longer view and to hold their nerve in the short term well i think that we're we're demonstrating that it works so you know the early work has all been about the last 10 years is all about being saying there is an alternative idea this is what this alternative idea is. And here's what this idea looks like in practice. So that's what the B Corp community is all about. You know, there's three and a half thousand B Corps all over the world now. And they are demonstrating that you can succeed as a business whilst pursuing this different idea and that it's better. You know, you have happier customers, happier employees, better retention. You can succeed commercially and you can have a really meaningful impact. And it's frankly a much more joyful way to live life. We're seeing the same increasingly in impact investment. There's a deep risk of greenwash and of basically big institutions with big budgets showing up and singing the impact song whilst actually underneath they're just making another sausage. So, so we've got with, with maybe a green wrapper. So we've got, uh, we've got to guard against that. But I think, that, I think that there is a tipping point being reached. I think that we've had, you know, we're increasingly 
seeing ourselves moving along the adoption curve. And this is starting to go mainstream. Still got a long way to go. We need to be super careful that it has integrity and integrity is the real risk. And I think the B Corp movement on the business side is fantastic because it's a, there's a really big evidence base there. I think impact investment is more challenging because there isn't a sort of gold standard for impact investment in the same way there is for companies themselves. But we're, we are seeing, for example, a lot of the, the most progressive and best in investment management firms becoming B Corps. And so that in itself is, a, is, is going to become a, a good test. So there is a bar and uh, we just need to, to hold, our, hold ourselves to it. So if any of our listeners are in a position where they've got a disposable income, perhaps they've got some savings put away, perhaps they've got a SIP, what would you be saying to them to, to start exploring this and to, to, you know, who's out there that's doing it well? So it's easier to do this if you are an institution or a very high net worth individual, because the regulation for what they call retail investors, regular folks, are very, very challenging to offer investments to. The best game in town, probably the most accessible game in town for me, would be a firm called EQ Investors. And that was started by a guy called John Spears, who, who started a traditional investment management uh, or investment advisory firm, IFA, and it was called Best Invest. And he ended up selling it. And then he, because he had understood, he'd moved from the old paradigm to the new paradigm. So he sold Best Invest and he ended up buying another business and calling it EQ Investors. He's put together a team that's seeking to advise people as an IFA um, and create investments for them. And an incredible company, growing incredibly fast and, and really finding that people are trusting and developing the track record. Going back to a comment that you said, you know, that there's, there's been sort of a 10-year a period of sort of exploring the idea and starting to kind of trial opportunities. I guess I'm interested in in what the what have you learned in those 10 years? I mean, that I think I saw on the website for Snowball that you're looking to change the way that in, the investment industry thinks and acts. It's a big punchy, bold, <laughs> ambitious claim to kind of change the entire industry. How do you take the community with you in this rather than you just becoming an outlier that's at the edges, sort of throwing rocks and stones and saying, you're, you're doing it wrong, you should be doing it differently? Yeah, well, we're very clear we're not going to do it on our own. But what often you need to see before you can make change is what the future looks like. What does the future look like? So a couple of examples would be, you know, the, we always used to think of a sandwich as something you bought on a British rail train in the 1980s. And then Pret-a-Manger showed up and showed us what a sandwich could be, you know, and everyone, it sort of blew our minds back in the 1990s. And then, you know, every, or the motor industry were basically getting nowhere with electric vehicles. And suddenly Elon Musk showed up with a Tesla and he showed the world what was possible. And suddenly every single motor manufacturer in the world is now in an arms race to move into electric vehicles. And sometimes you need these paradigm busting exemplars, these kind of people who say, look, it can be different and here's what it looks like. Snowball in its modest way is seeking to do that. And we're not alone. There's lots of people trying to do that too. You know, EQ investors on the IFA side, you know, tribe impact capital on the high net worth advisory side. So what we need to see is we need to see practical working engineered alternatives to the old paradigm. So what does an interdependent investment company look like? Snowball is seeking to demonstrate what that might be. Otherwise, all we've got to look at is individualist paradigm, financial maximizing investment companies. And you can't see the future if all you can see is the past. Can you think of any other 
specific businesses or products or services, ideas, who you think whose value is currently being overlooked? I think that the thing we don't think about when we consume is where it's come from and where it's going. You know, and, and I think that there are an increasing number of businesses that are thinking about that. Sometimes it's more expensive because there is definitely a, a linear economy. It's cheap to dump on society, right? You know, it's, it can be more expensive to be thoughtful about that. And yet, you know, sometimes it's cheaper because upcycling can, can reduce your raw material costs. The point is, I think that there are a huge number of companies that are doing it. And the place I look for them, honestly, is the B Corp community. Mm. Um, I, look, I look at the B Corp community and I know that every single one of those companies is pursuing this interdependent paradigm and they've got some great products and services. Brilliant. Has there been any kind of two, perhaps two cultural events that you've enjoyed recently that you would recommend to listeners? Yeah. Okay. I've got one frivolous one and one slightly less frivolous one. The, the cultural event that I've enjoyed massively recently, which I'm sure we've all enjoyed, has been the TikToks uh, that came out in response to Meghan and Harry's interview. I think they've been completely brilliant. <laughs> and uh, that's what that's what we're all about as a human race is we need to kind of be able to do TikToks of interviews like that. So yes, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, although I'm not sure how helpful that is to your question. I think the other one is uh, that I definitely think is super interesting is something that's going to be happening from July to November this year, uh, which is something called the Good Chance Theatre Company. Um, have teamed up with the guys that did War Horse, you know the the play. Yeah. Yeah. And they've created a three and a half meter tall refugee girl. Oh, wow. A three and a half meter tall puppet. And she's going to walk from Syria to Manchester. Gosh. And, the, and there's going to be a series of events um, in all of the places that she passes through Turkey, kind of Eastern Europe, Western Europe, through the UK, to welcome this refugee girl to these wow. places. So it's July to November. It's done by the Good Chance Theatre Company. It's called The Walk. Promises to be the most exciting cultural event. Very good. And I imagine there's probably a website that you'll be able to track it and follow it and get updates of what's what's going on. Exactly. And invite, invite her to your town. Well, James, thank you so much for being part of today's podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, all the best with Snowball. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.